Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Teach Me to Code podcast. This is your host, Charles Max Wood, and this week we're going to be talking to Chris Matman uh, from the OODT project. Now, OODT sound stands for uh, Open Source Data something or other. Let's see. Object-Oriented Data Technology. I totally screwed that up. And I'm going to leave it in. <laughs> so anyway, um, so yeah, so uh, he is a, a guy that works for NASA in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's also an adjunct professor at, at the University of Southern California, um, doing a whole bunch of graduate stuff there. Um, I jokingly told him that I didn't know when he slept, um, basically because he's just so busy. Anyway, it was super interesting talk about what OODT is, how it's set up, how it manages everything that it manages, what all the moving parts are. And so I'm going to go ahead and just uh, stop talking right now, turn the interview on, and I'll catch you on the other end. Thanks. All right. Well, I am here with Chris Matman. He's uh, an engineer over at NASA at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's also an adjunct professor at USC. And uh, he's been here all week with his colleagues talking about OODT, which is a, an Apache uh, project. Now, is it an incubator project or is it a top-level project? It's a top-level project. It started out in the incubator in January 2010, and in, uh, in November it became a top-level project in 2010. All right. Well, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll start talking about the project. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, thanks. Um, yeah, so I am a senior computer scientist at JPL. Uh, basically what that means is um, I lead development teams in a number of areas. Uh, the information technology people or software engineering people at JPL typically build science systems or systems to support physical and natural life sciences type mm -hmm. of stuff. And at JPL we have a particular expertise in earth science uh, and planetary science. So I lead development teams that build software to help support earth and planetary science data systems. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor at USC. Uh, I teach graduate courses in software architecture and uh, in the spring of every year and in the summer I teach a graduate course in search engines and information retrieval. And uh, I'm a member of the Apache Software Foundation. I'm the first member ever from NASA. Uh, and uh, I contribute, I'm the VP of ODT, um, as Charles mentioned, and then I'm also the VP of a, a content analysis and detection toolkit called Tika. And um, uh, I, I help out in the incubator and mentor podlings and things like that. So, And you don't sleep, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't tell my wife that, but yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, a little bit about OODT. It seems like it's kind of a, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, I guess sort of a, a pipeline for multiple inputs of information and the multiple outputs on the other end. Is, is that an oversimplification, or is that generally how you would think about that? I think that's a great way to think of it. Um, yeah, basically basically what ODT grew out of is sort of two, two canonical use cases. Uh, the first use case is basically <clears throat> when scientists have already built up a large set of data repositories, and typically they're geographically distributed. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know... Uh, a bunch of you know big data nodes across the country at universities and institutions already have existing data or uh, existing processes in place, mm -hmm. and uh, then they want to federate it together. Right. They want to link it together and let people search and things like that. That's one of the use cases that it does. It, it like read-only virtualized access to data that already big data that's already there. Right. The other thing would be that it supports is exactly what you just said, 
which is data pipelining. Um, mm -hmm. And typically where we see that is in sort of earth science missions like um, remote sensing instruments that, that generate uh, raw sort of telemetry and stuff that we take. We process up through the levels, we, we, we calibrate it, we, we geolocate it, we temporally locate it, and then we extract out the observations and we ship it out the other end of the pipeline. And we do that at scale, 10,000 jobs a day type of thing. We do it with you know hundreds of terabytes to petabytes of data. So that's the other major use case that it supports. Right, so it seems like there are three different areas that, that it manages. You know, you have the uh, managing the raw data coming in, you have something in the middle that munges it in some way, and then you have the other end that knows how to talk to whatever needs the information that's coming out of it, right? Yeah. So um, let's talk about the inputs for a minute. Um, how do you how do you manage all of the different ways that you can bring data in? I mean, do do people? I was just talking to uh, Carl Wright about manifold CF, and he was talking about connectors. Is that kind of the idea that you have there for the inputs? Yeah, absolutely. So what happened in two thousand five is I was uh, sort of starting to contribute and become a, eventually become a committer on the Nutch project. Mm -hmm. Nutch was the uh, home of Hadoop before it got spun out. And my particular itch that I like to scratch in Nutch was, was, was parsing content detection and analysis, but also I liked the protocol layer in Nutch. Mm -hmm. uh, the protocol layer in Nutch was in our fetcher and our crawler in Nutch, we had um, a sort of a combined download remote you know, URLs from different protocols, FTP, HTTP, you see a bunch out on the web, pull it down, and at the same time ingest it sort of into Lucene. So right. what I wanted to do with ODT was we had sort of a similar use case with science data. Um, we, have, we have data like ancillary information from NOAA, from other NASA mm -hmm. centers, from, from various places that we want to pull in, that we have to pull into a mission. Like we might pull in a digital elevation map or something, right. uh, you know, to maybe geolocate a, a raw product or whatever. And um, so we have to go out to these sites and pull down this ancillary data. So we could have done, done the Nutch approach, you know, originally back then, but one thing I wanted to improve on with Nutch is that I really felt that the protocol layer being sort of coupled to the ingestion mechanism at the same time brought two pieces of very complex code together and made it really hard to maintain. Mm -hmm. um, basically, the one piece of the complex code is ingestion, which is a difficult problem in its own right, um, but then the other one is negotiating all these remote protocols and stuff, knowing how to get something from grid FTP or SFTP or all these mm -hmm. things. In fact, that's the area that I did my PhD dissertation on, which is figuring out how to select different data movement technologies. Right. Yeah. So, so so with ODT, what we have is we have a push-pull component separate from our crawler component, which just assumes everything is local, that it's already been placed there. Um, it's already been put in a local staging area. And what push-pull does is it goes out and we can tell push-pull, okay, you know, go crawl these remote sites, go mm -hmm. pull them down, um, accept data pushed to you with an email or you know, with some pointers back to where to okay. go get it. And then its job is go get, the, go get the data, go get the files, go get the metadata, put them all locally on disk, and at that point, our crawler can take over and do its magic and mm -hmm. things like that. That's a really interesting approach. I think a lot of people just kind of assume that you know, you go out, you get whatever information's coming at you, and then you, yeah, you grind through it like you were talking about with Nutch. Whereas instead, it's like, okay, look, we're all we need to know is where to put it. Yeah. For ingestion, and then and then something else can come and take over from there. That's right. And a lot of times, the reason for that is that there's a couple reasons. The first reason is that our scientists. <laughs> They system engineer the heck out of these projects. And so five mm -hmm. years before we even 
run the code operationally, they told us what the staging area should look like. It should you know, be organized by day, it should be organized by month, it should be organized under these product types or these file types right. and things. So we know how to build that staging area and where they want the, the, mm -hmm. the data files to be plunked into. Right. And so, so, so the push-pull is, you know, one of its main goals is not just to go get it, but also to build these sort of rich staging areas as well. And then the other, uh, <clears throat> the other, the other reason behind it too is that we felt that there were two sets of users uh, that are maintaining these different components. Like, so for instance, push-pull can be managed by a system administrator. Right. You know, um, it's not, you don't need to be sort of a hardcore developer or scientist to know, you just need to know, well, where's the data? How can I, you know, bake it up into configuration and policy? Mm -hmm. And uh, so lets the system administrators manage that. And then on the other end, ingestion starts to get more into metadata extraction, you know, right. understanding the data a little bit better. And so that's, the, the devs really, you know, manage that, you know, and then they work with the scientists and stuff. Right, because you're customizing it for the domain that you're that's collecting right. Information for that's right. So um, is the is the staging typically just a general file system on a yeah? So we we that's exactly that's exactly right. So we we don't do so. So a lot of people ask me what the distinction between Hadoop and ODT is and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And uh, so the distinction in my mind is that they're very complementary to one another. And the reason being is that Hadoop um, basically does you know two major use cases, and it's kernel at its core. You know, I'm not talking about Hive or you know any right. of the stuff on top of it, but at its core, it does a huge, massively replicated, scalable, para, you know, uh, distributed file system. Right. And so what it does in basically is it virtualizes commodity disk or you know to look like one big mount. So mm -hmm. we love stuff like that because right. in ODT it just looks to us like you know one mount when we're placing it on on disk, and the storage you know is sort of all handled handled underneath. Before Hadoop came along, we had the same approach. We would leverage things like NFS and Lustre, right. you know, because we figure twenty years of research that people have done into doing mm -hmm. that right, we can't do it any better. Right, and you so we some kind of virtual volume on the yeah across <laughs> multiple disks across multiple. That's right. Yeah, and so people that are good at that, we say great, awesome, and then to us it just looks like a, a mount mm -hmm. and a path and. So, so ODT doesn't handle the storage aspect of it. You know, it's complementary to Hadoop and to iRods and to all these things mm -hmm. that you know do that. It just kind of takes advantage, you know, of it. And um, and so yeah, and so that happens in the staging area. It also happens in the archive when we take it from the staging area and build up sort of the rich curated archive, you know, and stuff. Right. So building up the archive is that where it's uh, sending it off to different things, or is the archive a different piece of the same puzzle? The archive is a different piece of the same puzzle. The archive is basically the entry point a lot of times for scientists that want to use our system. Mm -hmm. So the staging area is kind of where stuff gets plunked into and where we kind of grind and figure out, you know, we evolve our metadata mm -hmm. extractors, we evolve, we start to understand the data over there. Right. In the archive, that is the, that is the sort of dissemination point a lot of times for scientists. Scientists will write their tools you know, in IDL and Python, and they will never care that ODT ever existed or right. you know, name your technology ever existed. Mm -hmm. They want their HDF file underneath year, month, day, uh, you know, instrument ID and whatever, and then they'll write their tools. They understand Linux, you know, because right. a lot of these scientists have been trained you know, to hack in Linux or Python or whatever. Uh -huh. They can navigate their way around. And then they understand Envy or IDL or you know, whatever, and they know mm -hmm. how to write tools that, you know, and they understand HDF and NetCDF. And so they write their tools so that it picks it up in a particular area, you know, uh, from the archive, you know, uh -huh. and stuff like that. And so that's a lot of times, you know, making the archive, just making, putting the files on disk in the right place, maybe, you know, the last value added, you know, for us, uh, you know, from some of these sort of these missions, as far as the sciences, scientists are concerned. So the archive is where we take the files from the staging area, 
uh, we plunk them in the archive in the right place, and then our file management component then shoves their metadata into some catalog, Solar, Lucene, uh, a database, uh, Hive, you know, whatever, and it puts right. the metadata there. Okay, so basically then um, Lucene or Solar or whatever just has a reference back to the whatever path. document that you have That's right, on, on your system. on disk and stuff, yeah. Okay. So the file manager basically, we like to call it, you know, the file manager is not a search engine, but uh -huh. it is something that does a darn good job of being a file catalog. Right. It manages metadata about files, their locations, um, it uses Tika to, you know, extract out the MIME type, it manages that mm -hmm. about each one of the different sort of file references that are part right. of what we call a product, mm -hmm. you know. Um, NASA adopted the word product a lot of times in science uh, to represent what they call their data files uh -huh. and metadata. And it's because it's a product. It's their product. It's the thing that they you know, build a lot of times uh -huh. that they're seen as. So. That's really interesting. So essentially then uh, what happens is you have some ingestion process that goes and gets documents from somewhere, pulls them in, puts them in the staging area, and then you have something else in there that says, okay, this is the information I care about from the the stuff in staging and so it goes ahead and catalogs it in one way or another and sticks the the documents then into the archive where people can find them where they want to find them but also tells Lucene or whoever else that you've connected to this is you know this is how you would look it up this is how you know this is its start date time it's end right. date time you know uh -huh. here's it's where where's it on the earth here's, like here's all the metadata that you're going to want to you may want to search on or may want to categorize these other that's right. Resources by. That's right. And the thing that gets it from the staging area to the file manager so it can put it in the archive is our automated crawler system. Mm -hmm. That's the other piece of that push-pull sort of interacts with. And so what the crawler does is it does two major functionalities. The first is, okay, we've got the staging area. What files in it do we care about? Because we might not care about all of them. We might have just right. pulled some files down so that they can plunk around and look at them. Mm -hmm. um, but so how does it do that? Well, it has three major mechanisms to do that. Um, and it breaks down into three different crawler types that we have. Mm -hmm. The first is they delivered us a file and they were kind enough to give us a metadata file in the ODT format. Mm -hmm. Awesome. We don't have to do any other magic work. We've got our MET file, we've got our, our file, we can ingest it. So for us, right. that's our standard product crawler. Okay. Um, the other type is that we've got a file and they kind of told us how to extract metadata from, from it, mm -hmm. or we just figured it out ourselves. And so what we do is we, we have an, a metadata extraction framework in ODT that leverages Tika that you know can call other metadata extractor tools like Google or you know, GDAL and, and things like that for GIS. And what, what happens is, um, uh, we bake up a metadata extractor that you can test mm -hmm. outside of the context of the system. It doesn't have to be integrated into this big system because that's another right. big thing about ODT is that it lets you to develop the pieces that are separate that you know in in kind of their own testable little units, right. not you know having bringing the whole system on it, making it harder to test and debug. So we have the metadata extractors, we build them for the files, and then once we've done that, it's the second major crawler type, Met Extractor Product Crawler. And what it does is it encounters files you know, on disk, mm -hmm. we tell it which files to care about um, uh, through file filtering, regular expressions, through right. Tika and MIME types, whatever. And then what it'll do is it'll call a metadata extractor on the fly when it encounters each file. The third and final type of crawler is our auto-detect product crawler, and that's like our super god crawler. The only difference between that is that there's like a single configuration file, and we use MIME types from Tika to map to map what file types should get called for what extractors. So okay. it's like a super version of the metadata extractor mm -hmm. crawlers that you might develop 10 of or whatever. Right. Um, it's just one. 
And uh, typically, the distinction between Medextractor product crawler and auto detect crawler is that Medextractor product crawler is really good when you're going to fork start up 10 crawlers and you've done a really good job of richly defining your staging area, how mm -hmm. things break down into different folders and stuff. Right. Um, a lot of times, that doesn't happen, though, like especially on science research projects, not missions, <laughs> not system engineer ones, right. where a scientist comes to us and is like, I want a big data system, can you do it in two weeks? You know, the right. five minute data system, you know, thing. And uh, a lot of times what'll happen in that is they just shove all the files into one directory. And so right. AutoDetect product crawler is really good for that because it allows us to sort of virtually define delineations in that one directory between what product types there are and what metadata extractors should get called. Uh -huh. Yeah, and so that's, so once all of that happens, either one, we pick some combination of those crawlers, we fire them up, say go, mm -hmm. and then they're constantly kind of crawling. Push-pull is doing its thing separately to plunk stuff right. in there, and then the file manager is doing its thing when the crawler puts uh -huh. the stuff in it, and uh, you know putting the stuff on disk and putting the metadata in the catalogs and stuff. All right. That's ingestion, basically. Wow, there's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, what, uh, what types of systems can you uh, pull in right now, like what, what kind of connectors or? Oh, from documents or yeah, or, yeah from other systems? Um, yeah, so a lot of times like uh, we pull we pull data from uh, FTP sites that people, a lot, of, a lot of scientists and a lot of data ordering systems at NASA, NOAA, you know, wherever, they're just kind of FTP systems or whatever, mm -hmm. so we negotiate that sometimes. Um, sometimes we go into clearing houses, like Echo is a big clearing house for NASA data. Okay. Um, it's like a set of web services and stuff mm -hmm. that we can, you know, can we connect to and pull stuff down. Um, a lot of it is driven by push-pull and what protocols it supports. Mm -hmm. um, right now it supports SFTP, uh, SCP, uh, HTTP. Um, it can do custom web services. It has an extension point to plug in new protocols if mm -hmm. you want. So sometimes we've written customized protocols to talk to various other, you know, uh, proprietary or whatever um, uh, right. web services and stuff. A lot of times, since we moved it to Apache, what we found out though is that when we were using this at just NASA and JPL before, we were using a lot of we were using a lot of libraries that weren't necessarily friend friendly license-wise. They were copyleft mm -hmm. or LGPL or GPL right. uh, type of licenses that didn't really allow us to redistribute the software. Um, and so we found that out when we moved it to Apache and we brought the code to the incubator because we had to go through this vetting process, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for, for, for licenses. And we found out that a lot of, a lot of like the uniqueness and protocols and stuff like that is managed by libraries that they don't, you know, they want to charge money for or they don't want to charge money, but it's just they want to block sort of downstream, you know, right. corporate use of it and stuff like that. So when we moved it to Apache, we found a lot of the protocols that we had, we couldn't ship at Apache. Um, oh. You know, with push pull because mm -hmm. they just you know so we spent a lot of time basically finding other protocol libraries to replace what was already there that were more sort of uh, you know Apache license friendly and things like that. Right. And so in the end, we got it back up to the level that it was before, but it took mm -hmm. us a while, you know, to figure that out. Right. So if somebody needs to write their own um, connector or protocol or you know to be able to connect to this external API, mm -hmm. um, what what's the process behind that? Um, right now, they write some Java code and some XML to bind it, you know, to say, to declare the new protocol, and then they write uh, Java code that implements our protocol interface, mm -hmm. which basically defines how do you um, list files, you know, remotely, how do you accept files, you know, from a filter, um, how do you, uh, you know, we can also in push-pull extract metadata if mm -hmm. we want, and sometimes we'll extract some basic metadata like right. the remote site, the remote URL, there are a checksum or something, mm -hmm. so when we pull it down, so you define how that happens, how that metadata right. gets generated, and you basically just write Java and XML to do it. Okay. And then once it's in the staging area, 
how do you write the the crawlers? The crawlers and stuff. The crawlers, the all the three crawlers I talked about: standard product crawler, meta extractor product crawler, and auto detect crawler. You don't rewrite it. The plugin points to them are standard product crawler. You don't have to write anything. You just have to have a met file already in our format. Right. Um, and we have several metadata extraction utilities. Some use Tika. You know, some are command line stuff that can generate those mm -hmm. um, on the fly. Um, the meta extractor product crawler, the plugin point is a metadata extractor in any language that mm -hmm. can generate a CAS metadata file, which is an XML key multi-valued structure. It's bare bones. It doesn't mm -hmm. have any, you know, glitz on it. <laughs> it's just key multi-value. Uh, and then if you can do that and you can write an extractor in any language that can do that, we can integrate it in okay. um, and plug it into the meta extractor product crawler. To use the auto detect one, you bake up some configs in XML. Um, if you're familiar with the Tika MIME types format, you'll be familiar uh, with with that. And then uh, you'll have to have your metadata extractors already written that you can you know uh -huh. map it in the config too. Okay. Yeah. So um, I guess my next question is: is what what was kind of the most challenging part of building a system like this? I mean, it seems like there are a lot of moving parts, and some of them seem relatively simple, and some of them maybe not so much. Yeah, so to me, so far, the most challenging part was when they... So I started on the project in 2002, 2003. And basically, I was kind of in between careers at JPL. I was an academic part-time originally, and then they hired me full-time. I started working on uh, this project that was canceled, <laughs> Digital Earth. It was like this Al Gore project or whatever. Mm -hmm. and when I came to JPL, it was canceled, and they had to find something for me to work on. Right. So I started working on our enterprise directory LDAP server that we were migrating from X509 to LDAP. Oh, that sounds and so, fun. <laughs> yeah, it sucked. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I, uh, then I, I was kind of in between careers, and I met this guy at JPL, Dan Crichton. They told me, you know, go talk to Dan. He's doing this ODT stuff. You know, you, you might want to go talk to him. Maybe he can find you some work. And so I started working for him on the project, and it was, like, awesome. And I started learning a whole, a whole, whole bunch of stuff. He's really been a great mentor of mine at JPL. And uh, basically what happened was when I came on the project, I worked kind of in information integration more uh -huh. for two years. How do we take these virtual archives? You know, how do we bring them together? And the hardest part of that project was that we had a ton of smart people, but they were writing the same code over and over again. Uh -huh. So some of the recent innovations and improvements that we've had to our information integration stuff has been the result of like me and others basically saying, we're not going to write another, and I can explain this terminology later, but we're not going to write another profile server or product server. We're not going to redo the query parser again. We're right. going to standardize some of this stuff, you know, so that was one thing was just sort of hurting the cats on the information integration side mm -hmm. in the beginning. The other major hard, hardest part, I would, I would say, is in 2005 when the Orbiting Carbon Observatory came along, the OCO project, mm -hmm. and they basically told us, okay, cool, here's a new kind of NASA, um, you know, upcoming next generation type of mission. Here's the difference. Earth science missions before, we're talking like, you know, five, you know, 10 gigabytes, you know, type of metadata catalog at the end of the mission. You know, right. so after years, we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of files and things like that. OCO came along and they said, we're going to do 150 terabytes in a year, and then we're going we're gonna to run 10,000 jobs a day. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and so at the time in ODT, our catalog and archiving component mm -hmm. and service was this monolithic component that right. was tied to a database. You couldn't start it without a database running. Right. You know, you had to have some... And, and then not, everything was sort of brittle. It worked okay for what it, you know it uh -huh. was, but it just needed a lot of. It wouldn't support. It wouldn't have supported OCO. Right. And so basically, I had to make a choice at half time. You know, funded not full time, but just half time working on that project. 
I had to make a choice of trying to band-aid the crap out of something to see if I could make it support it, or just making the conscious decision that I was going to rewrite the whole thing and refactor you know, what was originally this monolithic component that did file management and uh -huh. workflow management into separate components that did that. And then to add another component that allowed us to push our jobs out into the clouds, to grids, right. you know, and things like that, because it wasn't doing that before. Mm -hmm. Actually, it sort of did that, but that component was completely different. It was this library that was written in C that was like hidden off in a mission that you couldn't reuse, you couldn't, you know, take on. Right. Yeah. So that was the hardest part was spending, you know, spending. It took to get to get the first version of the next generation CAS up. It took about two two years straight, you know, to make it work. Mm -hmm. You know, and just working probably a time and a half. Sorry, don't tell anyone that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, exempt employer here. <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, working just way way into the night, um, you know, on, on some of this stuff. And uh, and then, you know, watching, I think I cried, you know, when it actually started working, you know, and I saw the data coming through the system. And then just the shocking part was shortly, you know, just after that, watching everybody just jump on. This uh -huh. mission came along called NPP Sounder Pete. They wanted a next generation data system. They're like, that's awesome. That's a cool way to do it. We like that architecture. We're gonna, you know, buy mm -hmm. it. We want, you know, we want this ODT thing for our thing. And then just watching what's really also been really rewarding is over the past few years, not just the missions, but then to have people outside, especially since we came to Apache, you know, outside of NASA, right. outside of the people that we had sort of direct collaborations with at NIH and at other places, mm -hmm. to see them come and be like, this is a cool way to do it. You know, we, you know, we could still use this, and to largely know that the core, mm -hmm. the core of these components has been pretty solid for five years right. and hasn't you know, changed very much. So. so I'm a little curious, you, you kind of brought up the issue of scale. Yeah. And um, so how, how do you manage that? I mean, it, do you have multiple servers that all write to the same staging area? And does that staging area have to scale across multiple servers or multiple systems? And Yeah, it, absolutely. The, the answer is yes to, to, both, to both things, is that there are technologies that exist um, out there where people have done a good job of like we were talking earlier about disks and things like that and federating disks and making, you know, so like we, we want to leverage all that. People like for resource monitoring on clusters and clouds, Ganglia is awesome, mm -hmm. you know, like and we, we are big users of Ganglia and, you know, for job submission, there's, I, I think uh, Suresh Maru in the Fast Other Talks got up and was like, there's there's a hundred workflow engines, you know, that are out there. It's so true. Mm -hmm. I, I published a paper in IEEE Software on this a couple years ago, um, and I helped advise this one guy, um, uh, uh, Buya. Uh, um, actually, he's down in Australia. He's a big workflow researcher. He did some tax. Him and a student did this taxonomy of. Uh, workflow systems. There's like 150. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyways, just, just knowing like what are kind of the, just staying abreast of what are the kind of, you know, emergent or disruptive technologies, you know, that are successful, that are kind of mm -hmm. friendly open source wise and whatever, and then just figuring out ways to write adapters to them and leverage them, right. you know, and use them. Because ultimately like ODT, what it really is, is it's glueware. It doesn't provide you a database. It doesn't you know, it doesn't provide you a workflow manager or workflow engine. It doesn't right. do all the cluster management. But what it does is it realizes that you would have installed those tools anyway, uh -huh. some combination of them, and inevitably you would have written some glue code to plug them together somehow. Right. And so what we try and do is be those plumbers, you uh -huh. know, or those foundation layers, and make it so that the process is a lot easier uh -huh. to plug them together. It's a lot more kind of, uh, you know, baked in standard interfaces, nice GUIs that if you play the game the right way, you get a lot of features and advantages mm -hmm. off of that. Okay, so so uh, if I were going to set something up, let's say, and uh, you know I had I don't know petabytes of data that I needed to pull in, 
you know, effectively what I just set up a cluster of push-pull servers and a cluster of staging servers and a cluster of, you know, to handle all this data? Or do you kind of have uh, one system, you know, or a cluster of systems that just do everything? Um, okay, great question. So if you were to pull in petabytes of data, yeah, like the first thing you would have done probably is system engineered it. You'd have said, mm-hmm. well, you know, I'm not going to put a petabyte of data on my MacBook. You know, I'm going right. to need a cluster. I'm going to need, you know, probably SSD disk or I'm going to need some mm-hmm. fast disk. I'm going to need lots of it. You know, I'm, I'm going to need probably fiber or, or some, you know, rich interconnect, you know, right. type of thing, uh, InfiniBand or something. So you have to know a little bit about, you know, hardware anyways. Right. And then once you do that, yeah, like the way that it scales is ODT is a distributed architecture. All of the components themselves could be replicated. Most of them are client server. So mm-hmm. you can arbitrarily sort of add more, more, more clients, you know, to the system to connect to servers. You can add more servers. And as you add more servers, it scales up. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, for pulling content, like if you wanted to pull a bunch of content down, yeah, like you could, you could, you could run multiple push pulls. Push pull also mm-hmm. provides some daemon server and checkpoint monitoring. So like all of the ODT components at their core, most of them communicate with XML RPC. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, <laughs> we liked it. We thought it was really good. You know, there's a ton of other RPC protocols out there. For us, like uh, Sean Kelly experimented with it. He's one of our developers, and he's actually uh, one of the members of the Plone uh, Foundation. He mm-hmm. loved it, and he you know got us all jived onto it. So Pushbowl uses XML RPC to communicate, mm-hmm. and so what it'll do is it can fire off these different daemons that are particularly geared towards product types and mm-hmm. monitor them and see what's going on, restart them, you know, run them at certain times. Right. Yeah. So you could do that. You oh, you could independently run eleven push pulls and monitor them with Nagios if you mm-hmm. wanted, or you know put them in on some other egg. Um, so we provide some of those facilities, but also you can just do it, you know, yourself. And then each one of them is also runnable by, <coughs> by themselves, you know, uh-huh. and if you just wanted to run push-pull from the command line and just have it stop when it's done, you could do that mm-hmm. too, you know. Interesting. Okay. So, so then you get all that information into staging and then, you know, you do all the other work to get it out. That's right. Distributed to where you need it. You probably start maybe trying to figure out what's in there. You know, if it's a if it's a geospatial file and it's one of the hundred, you know, Google knows about. You might take Google or have it already on your system and start playing mm-hmm. and seeing what metadata is there. You might read some documentation. You know, about mm-hmm. the if it's a product that has some documentation and says here's what fields are in there. Right. And then start cranking metadata. See what you can get out. Use uh-huh. Tika maybe. And um, then once you do that, okay, how do I get it into CAS metadata format, which mm-hmm. is just an XML wrapper around this. And then, uh, okay, let me try and, uh, on the other end, go to the file manager, tell it about what product types are coming into it, which metadata we want to suck into our catalog, those types of things. Typically, that's editing XML files on the file manager end. Mm -hmm. And then fire up a file manager, uh, you know, run your meta extractor or plug it into a crawler, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe maybe not run push-pull and do this all. So a lot of times, people don't just turn the system on end-to-end and then watch it work. They test each individual piece, make sure that it's working, and then they turn everything Mm -hmm. on. And... Most of the time, chances are, if you if you did that and you did it right, it just works, mm-hmm. you know. After that, so I guess my next question is, um, how fault tolerant is it? So, for example, if I have this whole cluster set up, it's pulling a bunch of data in. It's about halfway through the five petabytes that I want to pull in, and then the power goes out. Yeah, great, great. This is an awesome question. We've had a lot of um, discussions in the ODT community recently about this, especially with a lot of the newer guys. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, basically, what I tell them is the following. So, um, so a lot of the strategy with big data, you know, since Google started buying commodity servers 10 years ago and doing all this stuff was not to never fail. Mm-hmm. It was to assume that failure happens, mm-hmm. but to make it that when it fails that you can recover quickly. 
And right. I would say ODT falls into that category of technologies that does that. We're not, we're not engineering the God systems, and we get this question from the missions a lot because uh -huh. the missions come to us and they say, "We want our, you know, if we're going to use your new technology, you know, we want it never to fall, never to fall on its back, you know, to just respond to everything." And I was like, "Good luck." Mm -hmm. You know, I've never met a distributed system that did that in my life. Right. But what we can tell you is when it inevitably fails, when your disk fills up, another thing mm -hmm. that happens a lot of we'll get disk fill ups or we'll get some random operating system thing that we're sending jobs out to mm -hmm. or we're sending it to Amazon and something happens or some set some days worth of data isn't produced. What right. we will tell you is it's very quick to get it started back up. Let's start cranking right now. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it's a couple. You know, let's let's move everything out of the staging areas or move everything out of these or the archives into these different parts. Let's get some people just looking at what happened. There's tons of logging. There's checkpointing mm -hmm. at places in the system to restart where where you can right. and to get stuff back up and running as rapidly as possible. Right. Yeah. So on my five petabyte data set, I don't have to start over. Yeah. That's right. Because it, it knows where I was. It, that's right. It has a good idea of what's going on. If the disk fills up, then yeah, you just manage that by adding more resources or whatever you need to do. That's right. That's absolutely right. That makes sense. And and I really I really like kind of the the distributed uh, nature of this. It seems like more and more, um, if you're handling large amounts of anything, yeah, you know, a distributed system is definitely the way to go. Just because then you can isolate the pieces that interact and make sure that they're doing their job without having to go into this monolithic system and uh, I, I've built a few monolithic systems in my day and you know you it, it's really interesting to see where they fall apart and what's coupled to what and, and all of that and so I, I definitely uh, understand the trade-offs there and it's pretty exciting just to see you know what you can do so what kind of throughput have you seen with ODT? Um, I've seen it process tens of thousands of jobs per day. Um, okay. So, for instance, I'll just give you a real example rather than talking generality. So, so hang on. Yeah. What what is a job? Okay. So, awesome. Because we didn't talk about the processing end of it too much. Mm -hmm. We've really just kind of focused on ingestion. Um, a job basically has two two kind of fundamental notions within ODT, and then now we're starting to get into our workflow manager, you mm -hmm. know, component, our resource manager component, and our algorithm wrapper, our science algorithm wrapper. And so basically, uh, in our workflow manager, what we do is we go and we define control and data flow in there. So a scientist comes and tells us, or a mission comes and tells us, we have a pipeline. We need to run these five tasks in a row, and then we need to fan out you know, into these two other tasks. When they complete, we need to fan in you know, into this mm -hmm. other thing. And they don't know that to start out with. Right. <laughs> but then they, fi they figure it out you know, that this is their workflow. And so we come in, and we codify in our workflow manager through policy and XML files and things like mm -hmm. that. Here's the control flow. Here are all the properties for each one of the tasks. In workflow land, we're talking tasks. Mm -hmm. They're called workflow tasks. Um, here's their conditions. Here's their configuration. You know, here's that type of thing. And we can use environment variables. A lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll use environment variables because it's easy for system administrators to kind right. of switch in between. Um, and then uh, they'll define that. And you know, most of the time, these algorithms are written in different languages. Mm -hmm. Some of them are C++ for high throughput because scientists you know, do a lot of matrix multiplication, or they're written in C or something right. like that. Um, you know, or they're written in Fortran. There's still a ton of Fortran, you know, in it because Fortran is awesome at matrix multiplication right. and, and stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, they go off. The algorithm writers write those. And so we come in and, in ODT in our workflows. We define their control flow. What order you run them in? And then uh -huh. inevitably, what we do is we get into resource manager bill. 
resource managerville is, okay, we've got a workflow task, it needs to be tasked out, and here you see another kind of separation of concerns similar to push, pull, and crawler. Um, a lot of times you'll see workflow manager, resource manager in cluster computing and whatever pushed together. In other words, not only do you have the kind of workflow, the abstract control flow and data flow model, but you also have in the same component, how do we get this out as a job? Right. And for us, we saw those as a decouple point or whatever, because to us, the people that can manage the workflows are the scientists or the right. people that, you know, the devs that work with them. And the people that can manage the resource manager are system admins. Mm -hmm. The people that understand how much disk space is needed before a job should run. Is this an IDL job? Do we have an IDL license on that machine, on that node? Is this Python? Is it put in the right place? Uh -huh. um, things like that. And the SAs can manage that. So that's the delineation between workflow manager and resource manager. When there's a task that needs to run, gets shipped to the resource manager, it says, great task, okay, what are its resource-related properties? How many nodes does it need? Where should it go? Right. Um, and then what, what underlying resources, or I'm sorry, what underlying batch submission systems, monitoring systems are installed on our, our, our hardware that we can leverage? We can plug into Ganglia, get mm -hmm. monitor information from it, very similar to Hadoop metrics and, and whatever. Mm -hmm. We can plug into Torque and PBS, um, one thing we really want to do is plug into next-gen MapReduce, you know, mm -hmm. or whatever, try and figure out how to do that. One of our guys at JPL is working at that, uh, on that, and in the ODT community. Um, but uh, yeah, so then what happens is that we the job's ready to run. We, we get out there, we get out on the node. Well, a lot of times these jobs are heavily dependent on metadata and files. Right. Uh, to give them switches, to give them prior files. There's a lot of data flow dependent, you know, algorithms. So that's a big mm -hmm. difference between science data processing a lot and like what Hadoop does. You right. know, in certain cases, Hadoop is take big fat job, but it has to be mm -hmm. massively or embarrassingly parallel. Parallelize it, you know, into MapReduce. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then just split it up into little parts that are all working on little pieces of the same big job and then flow mm -hmm. them back in together. And that works because it's parallelizable. It's a parallel. Right. A lot of times science data algorithms aren't, or workflows aren't parallelizable. Right. Each job is heavily dependent on the steps prior to it, mm -hmm. you know, and things like that. And so we see a lot of that, although with next-gen MapReduce, they're, mm -hmm. they've, you know, they're dealing with that. With right, so it's very procedural as opposed to... That's right. And so, um, so for us, uh, you know, once it gets to the point where it's ready to run and it's, uh, you know, the task. Um, these things are written in different programming languages. Uh -huh. They need information. They need files. They need metadata. So we've captured a lot of that already uh -huh. in our file manager and whatever. So we run all of our jobs in this egg, this egg sack, this embryo called our task wrapper, CASPGE. Uh -huh. And what CASPGE is, is it's like, an, it's like an embryo with umbilical cords out to the file manager, to the workflow manager, to the resource manager, to feed this information down into the actual job. You uh -huh. know, to, to start it up with IDL, to feed it the files, to give it the metadata, right. and then to run it. And then once it, run it runs it, inevitably these algorithms produce files themselves, and they may or may not produce metadata. Uh -huh. and so the next step is extract metadata, get, get the information about the pipeline produced files, and then crawl it with our ingestion crawler, the same one that runs in the ingestion area. Get that information back into the file manager and make it available for all the downstream tasks to leverage. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's, that's the way that the processing end works. It leverages mm -hmm. a lot of the similar ingestion components, and then it defines all of these mm -hmm. sort of pipelines and, and everything. So that's, that's what a job is in ODT. So is a job, is it kind of equivalent to a task, or is it? It could be one-to-many. It could okay. be one to a one to many relationship. Sometimes a task equates to literally a single um, resource manager job and a single task wrapper, and sometimes mm -hmm. it equates to many, depending on the you mm -hmm. know way we actually have to you know push it out into the underlying science algorithm and stuff like that. Okay. And then sometimes the science algorithm forks off its own things or whatever. Right. And we don't try and control any of that. You know, we don't try and reach our hands down into that. We just leverage the tools a lot of times to do it. 
Right. So a task is made up of several jobs. Yes. One or several jobs. One or set one or more jobs. Okay. And then from there, you know, things just happen. They get pushed back in. It's all running in this sort of egg sack, you know, Mm -hmm. task wrapper that monitors the life cycle of what's happening. It reports info back to the workflow manager, to the resource manager when it when it's done, and it produces Mm -hmm. its files out there on the cluster, out there in the cloud on disk. We crawl them, get the info back into the file manager, and things like that. And so it just manages that life cycle. It's all Mm -hmm. running in that kind of you know. And the reason for that was we found we originally had the idea of like, well, maybe we should parallelize this or pipeline these out. But then you get into you know. What has to happen together on the same node versus what can you distribute? So mm-hmm. one guy was like, well, why don't we crawl the stuff that's produced on our pipeline nodes with parallelized you know, stuff or submit back to the workflow manager to do that? And then you get into very complex data flow dependencies and whatever. Right. So CASPG is a set of five to seven tasks we found that mm-hmm. we were always doing right. to run these science algorithms. And it, mm-hmm. that wrapper codifies those. What happens if a job fails? If a job fails, there's a couple different checkpointing you know, mechanisms that it does. If a job fails, inevitably out there somewhere on the, the, the cluster node or out there in some, and a lot of times these cluster nodes are federated through HDFS, NFS, mm-hmm. so they show up as one virtual mount point. They're in some jobs directory, broken mm-hmm. down by PG type or algorithm type, broken down by year. So the jobs directory that actually where the jobs are in, we organize typically or we curate, you know, uh-huh. we have a policy for it. So someone can CD over, see what happened in the job, say, oh, it failed, you know, at this particular part. There's logging in the CASPG. There's also, uh-huh. you can see which files were produced. You know, did it get to the metadata stage? Is there metadata files there? Oh, right. it didn't. You know, there's workflow manager logs, resource manager logs. And then we've built, uh, we've had, we talked about here at ApacheCon, this, this operator interface where you can monitor a lot of this stuff and see what's going on and figure out like which files have been produced and what hasn't been produced and then go look a lot of that information up. Mm-hmm. So there's an effort that started in 2007 to build this operator interface which was in struts and it was like totally not reusable. We couldn't take it from mission to mission and we've been resurrecting that interface trying to bring it into Apache, right. you know, and make it sort of more reusable so pe- anyone can deploy it. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. So uh, I asked you before about throughput and then I interrupted you and asked you about jobs. So uh, what kind of throughput do you see, and, and what exactly does that mean? Okay, so here's a here's a real example. Uh, we have a snow hydrologist, uh, Dr. Tom Painter at JPL, that came to us, and he's like, look, um, there's a decade's worth of data in the Colorado River Basin. There's a decade's worth of MODIS. MODIS is the moderate uh, Im- imaging sp- uh, spectroradiometer, <laughs> I think. I hope I didn't butcher that. Um, it's either that or the moderate imaging spectrometer. I can't remember if it's a spectrometer or a spectroradiometer. Anyways, don't listen to me. But anyways, MODIS produces these surface re- reflectance products, which measures albedo, um, you know, and uh, turns Al- out... Albedo? Albedo is the measure of reflectance, uh, you know, in remote okay. sensing of, you know, shooting some, you know, uh, laser or some image down and then seeing how much of the light in the spectrum reflects back up right. to determine some composition of whatever the pixel is, you know, there on the Earth. Okay. And so MODIS happens to produce a product for snow, uh, snow that's related to snow. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a surface reflectance product that tells us how much snow is in a particular pixel or covered area. And so anyways, as it turns out, that the MODIS products uh, could be very much improved because they're not very good when, for instance, black carbon is covering the snow or uh-huh. when there's a lot of, you know, dust, right. you know, there and things. And so this guy, Tom Painter, Dr. Tom Painter, has developed these algorithms to, like, improve it, to mm-hmm. improve MODIS products. 
And so he's particularly interested in the Colorado River Basin because it's in the western U.S. It's very important for water resource management there, decision making, right. you know, figuring out because the snow melt and the snow snowfall is very important, you know, uh, to a lot of different places in the U.S. and, and internationally mm-hmm. uh, for that, our international neighbors. Anyways. Yeah, I, I'm from Utah, so I understand. Okay, awesome. Yes, that's right. We, we got the heart Utah up in here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so Painter, Painter told us, you know, here's my problem. They're written in IDL, my algorithms. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard for me to run them at scale. I'd like to run it on a decade's worth of, of Modus data and produce these better products using my algorithms. You know, uh, and I'd like to run it a couple times. We have a couple different versions of the algorithm tested out on. Go. Oh, and by the way, can you finish in a week? <laughs> and um, how much data are we talking about? We're talking about probably you know tens of terabytes of data. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about uh, I think at last count, you know, twenty-seven thousand jobs. You know, um, we're talking about uh, you know um, IDL license. IDL is a interesting beast. It has a license server, so it's hard to parallelize things or, mm-hmm. you know, take IDL license programs running on the same node and, and figuring stuff out, uh, making sure that you can, you don't run them sequentially, even though you're running them through a system and stuff right. like that. Um, yeah, so basically in about a day, a day and a half, we had an ODT deployment up and running a virtual, um, a, a VM set up for the head node. We mm-hmm. borrowed and leveraged some resources at JPL in our data systems program office there, a couple cluster nodes or whatever. Uh, we looked at his algorithm, figured out the IDL, how to run it. Um, we added about six different product types because we captured some of the intermediate products along the way mm-hmm. in the pipeline that were being produced. Uh, we figured out what metadata was important. We looked up all this information on the Modus site and figured out, you know, what type of information he wanted. We right. added the capability to track provenance because one way to track provenance for us is to record input files and output files, which are mm-hmm. which files went into producing this file and then which files was this file a part of as in output. Right. We added that stuff. We fired up a couple of our user interfaces. We started up a file manager. We got a workflow manager running. We we did the resource manager policy. We said, you know, we've got these two nodes to submit to. They each have 16 cores. It's got this capacity. We turned the system on. Uh, we pulled down in about two days, maybe a day and a half, the push-pull data, the modus mm-hmm. upstream data from the LP DAC at USGS, uh-huh. uh, which DAC means Distributed Active Archive Center, and it's NASA's Earth Science Information Enterprise, their distributed set of you know nodes that are their data centers that you right. come to get their science data from, typically broken down by science discipline, like what mm-hmm. type of data is there. So we went to the LP deck, pulled down the search reflectance products in like a day and a half. We had all the data staged using push-pull. Uh, we fired up the crawler, got them ingested in the file manager and maybe, you know, half a day to get them, you know, because writing on disk is a lot faster than pulling them down. Right. Got that and started, and then we said, go, <laughs> crank. And uh, in about a week, we had you know, run 20, 24,000 jobs. This was a recent example in my mind, you know, so right. it was, you know, something pretty quick and super important, you know. So um, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, you know, in a couple days, so, you know, 10,000, you know, per day, that type of scale, uh-huh. uh, you know, yeah tens of terabytes of data. That's what we see a lot on the research end. Uh-huh. You know, on the missions, uh, like OCO is running 10K jobs per, uh, will we'll run, OCO2 will run 10K jobs per day. The NPP Sounder Pete mission is doing 10K jobs per day. Um, uh, NPP Sounder Pete has tens of millions to hundreds of, uh, growing to hundreds of millions of catalog entries, you know, that they're mm-hmm. dealing with and files and stuff. So that type of scale, it's big data. Right. So one other thing that was interesting, I sat in on Andrew Hart's talk about the, the children's hospital. Okay. And I thought that was really interesting. Is there a difference between managing that kind of setup and, and distributing it across multiple hospitals as opposed to managing the, the, the research data that you've been munging for NASA and friends? 
<laughs> yeah, um, yeah, actually there is. And uh, the biggest difference mainly breaks down into like the different product types, mm -hmm. like what types of file types we're dealing with, what types of metadata we're capturing. CHLA is kind of an interesting system too because not only is it are we doing kind of the data processing like the, the analytics and it's in the same type of thing there the people the researchers the clinicians um, at, at Children's Hospital and their partners are, are writing that lab algorithms or they're mm -hmm. writing you know uh, Python algorithms you know and things like that and then they're kind of crunching on the data they're doing it offline and they want to integrate it into an ODT system which is important. A couple things that we see there is on both ends of the pipeline, on the sort of farthest upstream end, what we see is that we've got to get data out of databases. Mm -hmm. So database is the first, because it's hospital, it's big product, it's COTS, they right. shoved everything into you know an Oracle product or some product, right. you know, whatever database product, Cerner, you know, these mm -hmm. different things. And then what they want to do is those are their op systems. That's how the hospital runs. Right. They don't want us touching those, you know, for you know, constantly querying them and things. Right. So what we do is we we do extraction on that end. We get the data out of the databases, we turn them into products, we turn them into files, uh -huh. you know, so that we can munge and operate on the research data all we want. Now sometimes in, initially that data is HIPAA protected and it's you you know, it's 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 it has to be more secure. Right. So when we build that initial kind of staging area or archive, which we call our HDP, mm -hmm. you know, and that in, in that HP stands for heterogeneous data products archive. Right. That has to be on secure disk. It has to be you know you know encrypted. It has to be you know it's a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And so that but that you know again ODT isn't you know dynamically encrypting that. We install the you know encrypted file system and you know we leverage tools to do right. that. And ODT kind of is a spider running on top. Mm -hmm. um, on the other end, once we've done our data processing and whatever, you know, with the HDP data, you know, or whatever, we go through process a lot of times of de-identification to mm -hmm. make the research data that we can share, right. you know, with other hospitals. And once we do that, the sharing part is also what we don't always see with the missions. The missions will produce all this big data for the science uh -huh. team, but then distribute to a DAC or distribute to a data center that is responsible for distributing it. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times, but with CHLA, we're also helping to do the information integration side too. Right. So that's a major thing. That's a major component of the system. The information integration side is basically making it available however you're doing that to the other hospitals that that's deal right. with these kinds of things. That's right. Yeah, and the however we're doing it part is like writing web services, you know, providing portals, letting them mm -hmm. search for it, you know, allowing building standard products that we can send and ship around, you know, to other hospitals so people can, you know, do mm -hmm. do re data analytics and stuff on it. Right. So are you anywhere close to having another hospital or two join this? We're close uh, to have one other hospital join. Now, the larger consortium of what's going on at CHLA is this 100 hospital place called our virtual pediatric intensive care unit, right. the Leland K. Whittier. Um, Leland K. and something <laughs> Whittier um, virtual pediatric intensive care unit. Um, so it was funded by the Whittier Foundation and uh, they are doing, uh, and then this company called VPS, uh, uh, they are doing like the hundred hospital stuff already. We at JPL were funded separately through the National Library of Medicine to uh -huh. start taking now. Now that VPICU hadn't been deploying ODT or whatever. Separately from the NLM, the National Library of Medicine, we got funded through the ARA, uh, you know, program with the government, basically where they were doing the American right. Recovery and Reinvestment Act. They funded us at JPL to do kind of like big data with ODT separately to build like decision support systems and to do like analytics and to mm -hmm. unlock the data, you know, from their, their, their proprietary repositories. Um, and then now that we've done that and we want to share this information with other hospitals, yeah, we are thinking, 
you know, down the road about potentially like how do we plug into VPICU, how do we, you know, leverage and things like right. that. Interesting. So can you tell me where the other hospital is that you're thinking about? Or? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I don't know that I can, I can because they haven't haven't done it yet. It's it's close to CHLA. It's another okay. hospital close to CHLA. Okay. So somewhere in the western US. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Really interesting. And you know, it, it's really fascinating to me just to see, you know, all of the different applications that there are out there because I mean, um, the the big data and the big data problems are becoming more and more common. Yeah, and I, I think common is kind of an understatement. I mean, it, it's almost ubiquitous anymore. I mean, there's so much data on everybody and, and about all of these different things that are going on. Yeah, and uh, you know, just as much there is there as many people trying to use that data to to justify an agenda or to to uh, to figure out if their hypotheses are correct or incorrect or you know, do do scientific data where it's like, look, there's a trend here, or there's a there's an application here, and so you know, these kinds of systems, I think, are going to become more and more important as as things move along, and uh, and we start seeing some of this being collected and managed and, and things like that. So, yeah. I'm I'm really excited to see where this goes. I, um, I I kind of jokingly told you when I went to your session that I went because it said space on the 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 thing, but but really, I mean. Um, once I figured out what it was about, it's just, it's an interesting solution to a very, very difficult problem. So um, I just want to thank you for coming on to the, the podcast again. I'll let you know when it's up and when people can get to it. And, um, you know, maybe maybe we can find some people to help contribute or, or get involved in one way or another. Yep. And Charles is automatically required to join the mailing list at this point. <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. Yeah, my my inbox will go to. I, I typically get like fifty or sixty emails a day that I have to sort through. Yeah, so that'll bump it up some. But just join. The, it's low traffic. It's it is. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm just kidding. But no, I sincerely appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Well, you you do bring up an interesting point, and that is is that with the mailing lists, you know, whether it's high volume or low volume, you know, and I think that just depends on the project and who's who's involved. But um, you know, that's kind of the Apache way is to provide that. And I talked to Jim. Um, about that, you know, he, he kind of explained why they do things that way and stuff. But um, I mean, even if it's just a general interest, it's a good way to get involved. Yeah, that's what, I mean, that's that's what we're we're all about. I mean, yeah, I was joking, but also I you know I do tell everybody that, and the reason it, you know join the mailing list is that um, my biggest thing in Apache, like they're still figuring me out. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> they're still figuring out this NASA guy or whatever. But um, you know, I just speak my opinion a lot of times, and most of the time, my opinion is that you know contribution doesn't mean code. Right. So, you know, if you're on the mailing list and you're contributing thought and whatever, in my mind at Apache, the PMC should recognize you, eventually give you the commit bit, which doesn't mean anything. Right. It, you know, people think committer means special. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times, you know, our Han Yandel, um, you know, who is a former director of Apache, I really, you know, two quotes from him, I, I'm going to butcher the quotes, but basically the upshot of his two points that I just really aspire to, I really truly believe in, are, you know, people think that Apache is all about the software engineering business. You mm-hmm. start out thinking that, but eventually you figure it out it's about the recruiting business right you know it's about getting people interested and the other thing is that you know flatter you know people also think being on the PMCs and separating PMC members from committers even and introducing new lines of separation you know or you know member uh-huh. you know things like that they also think that that's some way to you know divide or you know make different the different roles in Apache flatter flatter PMC ratios flatter committer pools you know mm-hmm. getting more people interested that's what it's all about you know it's all about community over code right you know and stuff so yeah so if you join the mailing list and 
and you, you know, think and you just, you know, or you just, you know, kind of listen and see what's going on and stuff, community over code. Yep. Well, and, and that's something I talked, I did a lightning talk last night um, about this. And, and basically, yeah, it was like, look, you can, the, the basic level of getting involved is joining the mailing list. You know, and, and everybody kind of looked at me like, yeah, we're at ApacheCon, duh. <laughs> you know, but uh, ultimately then, you know, you, you have opportunities. I mean, you can write documentation, yeah. you can contribute knowledge, you can contribute your opinion. Um, but uh, as you as you move along, I mean, you can go all the way up the chain of here's how you set it up. Right. Here's a video, you know, you record a video of setting these different components up and, and figuring them out, testing them out, things like that. You can do a podcast like this. Um, you know, my, my setup's a little more sophisticated than most people's. You know, I actually have a digital audio recorder here but uh, that, that we're talking and it's just, you know, picking up our voices. But, I mean, honestly, if you have a computer, most computers anymore come with a webcam and a, and a microphone in it. And so, I mean, you, you can set up your computer and just talk at it. Yeah. And it's really, really easy. You know, most people, too, if especially within the, the Apache Foundation, you, know, you get people that are really passionate about what they're doing. And so it's really easy to get them to talk about it. Yeah. Really. I mean, all you have to do is ask. And, and they, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll tell you all about it, you know. Um, and most of these people, they could talk to you for hours about this stuff. And so, I mean, it's really easy to get involved, really easy to, to contribute. And so, I mean, even if you're not a code person, if you're a science person or whatever, and you think this may apply to whatever you're doing, I mean, you join the mailing list, you know, get some of your tech buddies involved. If, if you need the technical help to set it up or something, you can ask questions on the list. Most people are really friendly on these lists. And, um, you know, and then you can start writing documentation. Here's how we set it up. Here's how we used it. That's right. You know, here's how we tied these things in, um, you know, you can you can get screencasting software for less than a hundred dollars so I mean then you can just record your screen and just kind of talk while you do it um, or if you're not comfortable with that you can record it and then go back over and dub it um, and I've seen both ways work really well but uh, I mean it's really easy to get involved so yeah I highly highly encourage people um, if you're interested in this to join the mailing list and ask how you can help um, and if there are other projects that you, that you see on Apache Software Foundation or even anywhere else you know, figure out how they're, how people are talking about it and getting involved, and then by all means, just jump in and do it. Well, thanks again for coming on. No problem. Um, you know, hopefully we can uh, keep tabs on what's going on, and if, if there's any news, then we can follow up maybe with another interview or, you know, just, you know, pay attention to what's going on on the mailing list and, you know, uh, write blog posts or whatever, but yeah. Anytime. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yep. All right, we're back. Uh, I just want to thank uh, Chris for coming on to the podcast again. It was it was really interesting to talk to him, and I met a lot of cool people at ApacheCon. Um, this is the last interview that I have from there, so next week I will be putting up some of the other interviews that I've got from some other people out there in the programming community. Um, but by all means, if you want to check out ODT, you can. It's odt.apache.org. And if you want to find out more about uh, Chris or any of the things that he's got going on, then I'll have some information about that in the show notes. Um, I've actually uh, spent some time putting together some pretty serious show notes. So uh, go check them out. Let me know if you'd like me to change anything on them. Um, things that you would like to know more about. Stuff like that. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, you can get that at teachmetocode.com. Thanks. Thanks.